As I was saying, my wife and I, we lead New Life Brisbane, absolute privilege. There's two things you need to know about us, though, is I pride myself on being on time and knowing where to go, being geographically, navigationally savvy. But every time I come to New Life Cool and Gatter, driving down the highway, and then I see this Welcome to New South Wales sign. <laughs> I'm like, oh, where are we, you know? And then this morning, Kath and I were driving down together, and she's like, honey, have we factored in daylight savings? And I was like, goodness me, we actually might not have factored in daylight savings. <laughs> but then I remembered last time I had this panic and all was well, we're actually on time because Coolangatta is in Queensland. Very helpful. <laughs> really helpful. Um, but today we're starting a new series called Crucial Conversations. And our heartbeat for the series is simply this. We want to respond to the questions of culture with the beauty of Jesus. There's questions that culture asks of the church which we think are actually entirely reasonable. Why do they believe what they believe? Why do they hold to what they hold to? And if our faith, our Christian worldview, can't stand up to reason based on the questions people ask us, man, we need to be open to the possibility that truth invites questioning. So we want to invite questioning and look at truth and discern that together. At the same time, though, we don't just want to model what it looks like to articulate the Christian worldview with helpful words we want to we model a way by which to engage conversation for us as the people of God to take it forward. In other words, there'll be some helpful sermons over the next six weeks that really speak to poignant and acute and critical issues. Today we're looking at technology in a few weeks' time. Um, do I give a sneak preview? We'll look at life, questions about the beginning of life, the end of life. We'll look at re reconciliation and a whole host of topics which we hope would provide bedrocks and statements and inspiring ways by which to wrestle with these issues. But it would be a shame if one thing we didn't pick up along the way is the people of God, the ability to take those conversations forward ourselves. All of us have friends. All of us have family. All of us have workmates. And the task of the people of God is to increasingly become the kinds of beings that can articulate helpfully in a way that leads people to Jesus, responding to the questions of culture with the beauty of Jesus. Today, I want to talk into the question of technology. And as I do, I want you to have two words in your mind, personalized and personal. Personalized world and a personal world. A few years ago, a movie came out by the name of Her. Has anyone seen the movie Her? It had Walking Phoenix in it, um, and it told the story of a guy named Joseph Tweeble. And Joseph Tweeble, he was lonely, recently divorced, depressed. And in the wake of his depression, he went out and bought a device, sort of like an Alexa or a Hello Google or an at-home smart device. And he named the device Samantha. And the voice was played by Scarlett Johansson, husky, attractive voice coming through the speaker. And as he builds a relationship in his isolation, in his depression, in his loneliness, he builds a relationship with this device. He actually falls in love with her. And he's sitting there having these conversations with her and he up, she updates him one day saying something along the lines of, hey, we found a better operating system. Me and all the other AI bots are going to migrate. So he's really sad about the prospect of this. And it forces him to ask this question. He asks, how many other people are you having this conversation with right now? And she said, oh, a few thousand. She said, I've, I've fallen in love with a few hundred of them. And here you've got this personalized device curating the experience of a lonely man. And the movie finishes with him. There's an image somewhere in my slide deck. There's an image of him just staring out. Uh, he's in his bed just with this absolute sense of 
isolation, loneliness. All the personalised devices in his world to make him feel not alone, but actually when the rubber hits the road, who are my people? Where's my connection come from? Hold that thought. I want to tell you the story about a lady named Marina Evelyn Keegan, born late 1980s, died early 2000s. She died in a car crash just after she finished her studies at Yale. She finishes her studies, lines up a job with the New York Times as a junior editor, and she's preparing for this incredible adventure after she's just had this enriching experience at university. And she writes this essay. And the essay became viral after she died. It was called The Opposite of Loneliness. And in it, she describes so poetically, so beautifully, what it looks like to, to experience personal connection in daily human life, reflecting on what it looks like to be part of the university. She said this. She said, we don't have a word for the opposite of loneliness. But if we did, I could say that, that that's what I want in life. It's not quite love. It's not quite community. It's just this feeling that there are people, an abundance of people, who are in this together, who are on your team. And I love this last line. When the check is paid and no one leaves the table. A personalised, impersonal world where devices became the crutch within loneliness vested. Personal, taxing, vulnerable, tangible relationships. As we look at the question of tech, I want to ask us as a community, I want to ask New Life family, what's the world we're looking for? The title of the talk today is Connection, Contending for Relationship in a Technological World. And I just want to start with the basic acknowledgement of two things. One, our world is steeped in what you might call devices. In most of our pockets right now, we've got a computer, the likes of which has more computing capacity, more power uh, than did the technology they used to send the first man to the moon. Right at the fingertips of our lives. There's devices that invade our living rooms in the form of TVs. We've got robots that do our dishes for us. Anyone got an amen for a dishwasher? Goodness me, praise the Lord. But I want to ask the question, are these helping us live the life that we're looking for? On top of that, how can we think wisely about technology? How can we speak honestly about the way that technology so insidiously, sometimes helpfully, invades our lives? And then how can we think practically about what we might do, not broad brushstroke rules, but helpful principles, frameworks with which to walk forward as the people of God with wisdom, becoming the very people that God intended us to be. Connection, looking for a relationship in a technological world. And here's my honesty as we kick off. I was preparing this week and I text my wife, Kath, saying, man, the more I get involved in this particular research area, the more I fear where our culture is going and where the people of God are going. I think I'm just going to tell everyone to throw their phones out on Sunday. <laughs> and some of you actually might feel challenged to do that. I hope you don't take that as a blanket rule from which you just insert it into your life. It's going to be so unhelpful. There's people in the room this morning who actually their job requires the use of technology. You might be a coder, you might work for Google, I don't know. 
And there's something wonderful about what you do. And I, I want to I speak in such a way that you feel absolutely free to do what you do and excited to do what you do. There might be someone in here, there's definitely a New Life Brisbane, uh, someone whose full-time job is as a YouTuber, which is this new phenomenon that a lot of young people want to become these days. Full-time filming videos of themselves for the sake of showing people and getting a following and amassing money because of the adverts that you put through the, the deck. And that could be your story. Then there's some of us here who intuit kind of where I'm going. And you're like, man, I just want someone to speak into how I can live wisely with this device in my pocket. What's the life we're looking for? An impersonal, personalized world? Or a personal world? One where you grow in your capacity to love with a group of people who grow in their capacity to love, the result of which is you finish dinner and no one leaves because you've learned what it looks like to communicate, to commune, to enjoy one another. And so to do that, I want to look at a text, and this is one of the most important Jewish texts in the Old Testament. This is, in a sense, what you might call the John 3.16 of the biblical writers. It's Deuteronomy 6, verse 5 and onwards. It's called the Shema, which is the Hebrew word for hear. And it's this clarion call to the people of God. They've just been liberated from Egypt. They've now come out. They've wandered the desert, and they get the law repeated to them for a second time, just so God can be sure that they've heard and will enact what he wants them to experience. And he says, funneling it all down, these words. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road. When you lie down and when you get up, tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. The central command of the Old Testament, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. The rabbis, they started to debate, how do you sum up the Old Testament? And most of them would say, oh, actually, I think this is it, Deuteronomy 6.5, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. But in the first century, this rock star rabbi named Jesus of Nazareth, he comes along, and some religious teachers ask him the same question, hey, what's your interpretation for how we sum up the whole Old Testament? Like, if you were to sum it up really helpfully, what would you say? No surprise, he says a similar thing to all the other rabbis, but with two additions. Let me read Mark 12. Jesus says this. One of the teachers, verse 28, and then 30 to 31 will be on the screen behind me. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important one? Jesus isn't surprised by this question. He'd get it all the time as a local rabbi. The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel... The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And here's the addition, with all your mind and with all your strength. Second addition, Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Here's the question I want to ask. Does this not give us a picture of what it means to be human? And therefore give us some train tracks through which to think about who we might be becoming and what God ultimately wants us to become. Because here's what I think God wants us to become. People who grow in our capacity to love. Love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbors as ourselves. 
Let me put it like this. You might be here, you might have no Christian framework, no background in the church at all, but here's what I want to say to you. You intuit this to be true. You are a heart. You have desires. You have passions. You have this drive within you that sometimes is hard to explain. It might be for another human, might be for a picture of the good life, might be for a particular worldview, but you have this drive, this passion, your heart. But you're also a soul. There's this interior part to you. You might say it's it's clearly not material, but maybe it animates the material in this way that sort of makes it visible sometimes, but this immaterial part to yourself, this interior part, which some people see, but you definitely feel, it's hard to describe, but you are a soul. There's something about you that's different from just flesh and blood. There's more to you than meets the eye. There's more to the eye than you would meet. You are strength. Let me do mind first. You're a mind. You've got this capacity to reflect, to think, to reason, to rationalize. And you are strength. The Hebrew word for strength is miod, and it could be translated as muchness. There's a muchness to being human. And we ought to turn up the muchness a bit. What, what is, what's another picture for this? Well, think about a cat. Cat's very agile. Humans don't have the agility of cats. Think about a leopard. Leopards are very fast. Humans don't have the speed of leopards. Think about a bull. A bull is strong. Humans don't have the, the strength of a bull. But man, you know what humans do do? They combine the speed and the agility and the strength in a way that very few other creatures can. That there's something about the complex of this heart, soul, mind, strength creature that God said, in my image, take creation forward within which become the right kind of thing. What does it mean to be human? It, I love what Andy Crouch says. He says it means to be a heart, soul, mind, and strength complex. That you're not just a body without a soul. And you're not a soul as if that's the most important thing about you. You are all of these things together, integrated wholes, embodied souls, all together for the glory of God in a way that makes you more than the sum of these parts. You're a heart, soul, mind, complex. And here's the takeaway then. Two things. Nothing can take that away from you. And God's vision for your life is that you develop those. You take these capacities forward and you would grow and you would become. Some people might sit here and think, that doesn't sound very Christian, sounds very human. Yeah. This is the biblical vision of what it means to be human, to take these God-given capacities and through imaging our creative Heavenly Father, become the right kinds of people for ourselves, for the world, and the glory of God. And within this vision, it becomes a lot more easier to talk about tech in general, but then very scary ways. Because you learn something. Sherry Turkle, a lady, um, she's professor, I think, of like social psychology at MIT. She wrote a book a few years ago called Alone Together, how we expect more from technology and less from one another really scary book title. Uh, but she had these words to say. She said, technology doesn't just do things for us. It does things to us. Changing not just what we do, but who we are. Now, how can you, how can you find this out to be true in your life? Well, on the screen behind me, you'll see uh, two things, two images. And I want to use the word play to describe what both of these invite us to do. You'll see a violin that you can play and you'll see a Spotify play button 
that you, if you're at home, once connected to a Bluetooth speaker, you can hit play on. Now, if I was to ask you, what's the difference between these two kinds of experiences of play? Why don't you just take 10 seconds and maybe turn to your neighbor and say, how would you describe the differences in playing the violin and playing music from a device? Describe those differences. Go for it. Wonderful. I'd love to hear from the floor, actually. So is anyone brave enough just to shout out some of the differences? Just raise your hand and I will select you and go for it. Oh, wonderful. I see, I see someone being voluntold, because of which I'm going to voluntold you, my friend. Yeah, wow. Yep. Yeah, great. <laughs> wonderful. One's active, one's passive. Wonderful. Any other differences? Let's go one more. Yeah, in the middle. Personal versus impersonal, wonderful. That's really helpful. So helpful. Active and passive is one of the big ones I wanted to draw out. Now, here's the thing. Does that make the passive one evil? No. In fact, here's what you would say. If human beings are designed with a heart, soul, mind, strength complex to take creation forward, then wouldn't you say that the device that gives us music at a push-button play, isn't that a wonderful expression of the God-given capacity we have to make beautiful things and be creative in this world? And all of our answers should be absolutely yes, that we've got the most recourse, the most reason, the most resource as Christians to say, man, this is a wonderful fruit of our God-given creative abilities. But there's a paradox in technology. And the paradox is simply this. Again, Andy Kraut says it. Before I move on, let me just reference two books that if you want to take any thought forward, whether you're a parent or you're a young adult or you're thinking through tech for your own life, I couldn't recommend Andy Crouch more highly. Um, I've tried not to just preach his words verbatim, um, and if you listen to his stuff, you, you can make the call on that. But um, these two books are incredible, The TechWise Family and The Life That We're Looking For, Reclaiming Relationship in a Technological World. Uh, really helpful unpacking of some of these topics. Uh, but he says this, he says, here is the heart of the paradox. Technology is a brilliant, praiseworthy expression of human creativity and cultivation of the world, but it is at best neutral informing human beings who can create and cultivate as we were meant to. Now, that's scary, because it begs two questions. How am I engaging in technology, whether that be, and like, everything counts as technology. Literally, an advance in being human is technology, like the wheel was technology back when it came on the scene, right? Um, but think through more modern devices, things that happened at the turn of the industrial age, the 19th century, after which you've got the introduction of electricity across the globe, and now we've got devices all seeping around our house, that kind of thing. How am I engaging in technology in a way that might deform me as a person, as a human being, as a follower of Jesus? But then, too, what are some ways that I can partner with God to take creation forward because of which technology will be a part of that? I'll give you an example. There's a guy in our small group, and he's a coder. And I heard him and another guy in our small group, both of who work in IT, talking about code the other night. It's just so cool to hear them talking with such excitement about how there's this language that I will never understand. 
but just this delight they had in the job and the role that they had and how they can take that forward. Or think of modern medicine. Think of the safety, I think of the Apple Watch, right? Not everything is good about the Apple Watch, but think of this sort of experience you have. If you have a fall, there's this sort of reaction the Apple Watch can do where it can automatically call someone saying that you've had a fall. What a wonderful blessing to the human race, right? Beautiful advancing technology. And so we don't want to say anything that's like really broad brushstroke technology is bad, um, being an Amish person is good, but we want to say it's powerful, powerful to form us in inconspicuous ways. Let me just unpack some of those ways really briefly. Uh, scholars have noted there's a guy named Wolfgang uh, Schuler, who in 2016, as a Cambridge academic, he actually noted that tech, uh, he did some research into addiction. Uh, and he noted the addiction cycle, where if you're given a reward that's unpredictable, it sets off the dopamine reward system in the human brain, because of which that activity becomes more addictive. And people after them, like Roger McNamee, who used to work at the executive leadership level at Facebook, he would say that the experience of getting likes and follows and comments, the little red dot you get for the notification in your Facebook window, that is just as addictive as the kind of reward you get from playing on a pokey machine. And so you think, oh, no, text's fine. It's not trying to fall me into anything. No, th there's actually something part of the experience that shapes us in particular ways. It's no mistake. Uh, in 2018, the Theresa May, the then Prime Minister of the UK, she appointed what she called the Cabinet uh, Minister for Loneliness. And one of my old colleagues used to say, it must have been a lonely job because there's only one role in the Cabinet. But um, she recognised that at the time, there's all these data and study coming out showing that people were more lonely than they'd like to be. In 2018, there's a group in Australia that partnered with Swinburne University. They surveyed Australia. They found that one in three Australians would experience loneliness in their lifetime. Jean Twenge, she did a PhD looking at four sets of data from the US, trying to understand how the rise in the mental health crisis, the loneliness epidemic and anxiety, how, how it mapped onto Generation Z, which sort of includes all those born after 1995. And she looks at this data and she asks this question, not causation but correlation, she asks this question, could phone use have a part to play? in the experience of so many people feeling isolated, lonely, depressed, and anxious. People are moving from correlation to causation, actually making positive cases that this is indeed connected. And Andy Crouch so helpfully asked this question. Is it a coincidence, or just a kind of irony, that loneliness has spiked just as our media became social, our technology became personal, and our machines learn to recognize our faces. So here's my takeaway point before we jump into something practical as the people of God. And I need to read it because I, I meditated so hard on this. You know, I started from, all right, phones away, let's, let's throw them out, you know? But here's what I really want to say. And here's what I think would be helpful, both for us as individuals, us as a corporate body, and then on top of that, us as we engage God's mission for the world. Here's what I want to say. Technology, if we let it, will deform us individually and disentangle us relationally. Changing the way we experience our own selves, God and one another. But technology, if we contend for it, it will empower us individually and engage us relationally. It will, we will make it comply with our values, with our own selves and our vision for community. That's what technology can be. It can actually be something we engage redemptively with as the people of God. 
And so I want to speak right now to the individuals in our midst, all of us, but particularly as individuals. But the task of us after this crucial conversation is to take it forward as the people of God and start to ask, man, what do we want technology to look like in our small groups? What do we want technology to look like as we come to church on a Sunday? Because let's be honest, this technology right now, I'm being amplified because we've got a great speaker system. But are there ways that technology perhaps inserts itself unwantingly into our lives as we gather as God's people? Great question to ask. So here's what I want to do. I want to introduce you to a concept uh, called the nudge. I can't remember who wrote the book, but um, they wrote it a few years ago, and they make the distinction between disciplines and nudges. And uh, to understand this, you have to ask the question, how do we become the kind of people we want to become? And most people will answer, well, through discipline. So say you're training for, you know, a big race. I was chatting with Georgie outside before. She's training for a big ride coming up. So how does she become the kind of person who can do the ride she wants to do? And the answer is she trains. She acknowledges where her limits are at in terms of her ability and her capacity. And then she puts herself under increasing strain and load so she can elevate and push up the capacity that she's got, change her limits through discipline. Um, but people recognize that actually the human ability to have enough energy to always be disciplined is really hard. Let me ask you a question. Uh, New Year's comes around, got all these resolutions, because of which you need to be disciplined. Who nails their resolutions with their discipline every year? Not me, right? I get tired. And so psychologists have realized that we actually need other things in our environment to encourage us from the outside in to become the kinds of people that our disciplines are pointing us toward, and they talk about nudges. A nudge is something you insert in your environment, external circumstances, that tilts you in the way of making the decision towards your discipline. What do I mean? Okay, so let's say I want to get fit and I want to, go th uh, I want to be able to run 10K. So I go through the discipline of training every single day for this 10K run. But man, I'm tired and I've got decision fatigue and I've got discipline fatigue and so I really struggle. How do I make it easier for me to train for this 10K run? Well, what I do is the night before I go to bed, get my shoes out, get my socks out, get my shorts out, my shirt out, get my Garmin charged and I get myself ready so that way when I wake up, all my stuff's there. It's so much easier for me to go for a run. I nudge myself through my external environment in the direction of what I want to become. Disciplines aren't enough. Nudges are what tilt us in the direction we want to go. Here's the crazy thing. People who design technology, particularly personal devices, know this. So think about notifications on your phone. That is a nudge. It's something, not from inside you, but outside of you, that interrupts you and makes one decision, which is to give your attention to the device, the most prized thing you can give over, makes that decision a lot easier. But it's not just notifications. It's, it's actually the presence of your phone in general. The fact that it's in your pocket is a nudge towards it being easy to grab, easy to find yourself involved. Let me ask you this question. Have you ever um, just lost track of time scrolling on your phone? Now, I think most of us will have had that experience. It's, and I don't want to even say it's disorientating. It just feels normal, right? It's like it doesn't even feel strange. It's just you lose track of time. That's designed. And it's not to say it's evil. It's, it's to call a spade a spade and ask, what are we longing for? You know, who do we want to become? The danger of technology is it can so easily dull the capacities God wants to grow, disentangling us from one another. And so what are some nudges 
we can implement? What are some disciplines we can put in place? And as I share this, think of these not as rules to recycle and parrot into your own life. Think of these as catalytic moments to cause you to reflect on who you want to become, growing in your capacity to love and be loved, know and be known. So here's uh, one suggestion. First is take an audit of your micro-practices. What do I mean? An audit is just a cross-sectional reflection on all the things in your life that make tilt you in a certain direction. Um, a lot of people will say, when they're asking, who do I be in life? They'll start talking about all the big things they do. So they'll talk about their job, or their relationships, or the place that they live. But actually, they're not the things that form us, typically. Typically, the things that form us are all the micro things we do in between all the big things. I'll give you an example. What do you do when you finish small group, and you get home, or maybe you're at home because you lead the small group, everyone's gone, and you're on the couch? What do you do? And one of mine and my wife's bad habits is we just get on our phones. I love watching cooking, small cooking videos on YouTube. They're wonderful. Just going to put that out there. You're not alone. <laughs> but time just flies by. I'm like, all right, awesome. Check out the way you cook this steak. This is an awesome crust on this steak. Check it out, Cass. <laughs> but what do you do? Or what do you do when you, you've just finished a night out and you get into the car and what do you reach for? Or take it away from, you know, particularly phones and devices. Um, think about the TV or, you know, the streaming service that, all of us have a subscription to? How many nights a week? And now, here's, here's the crazy thing. It's so, it's unhelpfully relative, right? Like if you were to say, oh, you know, three nights, it's really bad. It, you actually can't quantify it that way. Because there's this way in which the, the beautiful ancient tradition of the Jews renewed in the life of Jesus, our Lord and Savior, it actually meets us as individuals where we're at and just says, what's the next step for you as you become who I've called you to be? But what are your micro-practices, the things you do between the big things that take up your life? Second, shape space for creativity. So much of our space in life is shaped for consumption, where we just exploit the good technology other humans have made. But for centuries, man, people would shape their spaces around ways to cultivate whether relationship with one another or creativity within themselves. Give you an example, the old school thing at the center of a home, uh, we'd say usually most of us would want to say it's the kitchen, but I think usually it's the lounge room. But in, in days gone by, it was the fireplace. Now, to make a fire, you actually need to have a, you need to develop your capacities to chop wood, to think about when you want to set it up. You know, you've actually got to develop something within your personhood to craft this beautiful thing. But now we just couch potato. And on one level, it's, 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 it's fine, right? It's, it's actually okay to watch, Kath and I love movies. We watch a good movie once or twice a week and we froth it. But... Man, can you shape the space that you inhabit most to reward you for creativity rather than consumption? And imagine, here's the cool part, imagine the person you'll be in five, ten years. You'll enjoy reading, which feels like such a distant memory for our culture at the moment. You'll feel present with yourself and your spouse. Third, structure time for work and rest. One Jewish rabbi, a modern rabbi, um, said it so helpfully. He said, um, God's architecture is time. Isn't that a wonderful and he's invited us through Sabbath, resting, and work, engaging, to inhabit this wonderful roller coaster rhythm of inhale, exhale, inhale, exhale. And this is particularly prevalent with devices. And so um, he, uh, Andy Crouch, has got this wonderful principle. He says, one hour a day, one day a week, one week a year. 
We're going to turn off our devices. Just a fun question. Um, I remember recently I was reflecting on the fact that the dull green glow of my laptop has never been off, that I've never shut down my laptop, or like intentionally turned off my phone, I just put it to silent. That's interesting. Like when you think about it, that's just interesting and worth reflecting on. It's there, able to interrupt the wonderful relationships God's got for me personally right in front of me. So how can you structure time for work and rest? Keep the bedroom sacred would be the fourth one. Um, Kath and I, a few years ago, we bought an alarm clock. It's super ugly, but it does the job. And we charge our phones outside of our bedroom. And this is not me saying I'm high and mighty or whatever. I still watch YouTube cooking videos every night, profit. <laughs> but we realize this is a sacred thing in sleep. And there's something super holy about waking up and just, oh Lord, thank you. Thank you for this day. Just taking a moment. What would it look like to keep the bedroom sacred? Fifth, engage devices with a specific purpose. I'm coming to a close here, I promise. Um, you ever found yourself jumping on your phone because you promised a friend that's right next to you, oh, I'll get you that detail or that contact phone number or whatever, and then you find yourself jumping on there and being like, oh, what was I going to do? And I... I would just say, having done a bit of the study, it's like that's super intentional from the device designers. And, and that's great. What a wonderful product the iPhone is. But at the same time, how could you be intentional? I'm going on social media because I need to update this. I need to get that information for that church event. Then I'm done. And I'm going to go for a walk. Again, this is going to be oppressive if it's just a rule you obey. But if this is something you use in small and ever-increasing ways to become the person you're convinced Jesus wants you to become, you'll find this liberating. The power is back in your hands to become the follower of Jesus that he's called you to become. So how can you engage devices with intentionality? And lastly, chase awe and wonder. There's this practice that's been uh, talked about. It's come out of Japan. It's called forest bathing. Now, there might be some spiritual things that are you know, bad about I have no idea. I haven't done that much research into it, but it's called Shinrin-yoku. And literally, it's taking the world by storm. People that live in big cityscapes, they're just like talking about forest bathing, how it can restore our heart and restore our wonder and totally tap into this spiritual, precognitive base of being human. And I just want to say, man, the Psalms had it first. The Psalmist says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. And here's the question I'd ask. When was the last time you chased awe and wonder? You just let God meet you in the beauty of his creation. Technology is this wonderful gift that expresses the capacities humans have cultivated. But if so much of our life is insulated by it, particularly by handheld devices and social media, then we find ourselves as dulling those capacities God's invited us to cultivate. And here's the question. What life are we looking for? Can I invite us to stand as I invite us to respond? beautiful paradox, this thing we call technology. Man, it could be a force for redemptive good in the life of God's people. Would we be that people? I want you to imagine the power of a community when, which if you sit at their dinner table, 
they're fully there. Imagine being a non-Christian and coming into this community, and after a while, you just sense that they're fully invested in you, face-to-face, eye-to-eye, feeling what you feel, mourning when you mourn, rejoicing when you rejoice. Imagine the power of that kind of community in a modern world that feels isolated and alone and attached with an appendage to what we might call a device. Imagine the peace you've got in your own heart as you take these distractions that so easily insulate our lives and you just create margin and space for what is first boredom, (laughs) welcome back, but then presence with God. Imagine the way God might speak to you in in that space, change your life, interrupt you and put you on a different path. Imagine the way you'd be able to celebrate rather than compare what God's doing in the lives of others. In other words, imagine the people we'd become if we contended for relationship in a technological world. Why? Connection. On one level, you'd hear this and you'd say, oh, I could probably do that by myself. That sounds great. You don't need to be a Christian to implement any of what I'm saying. And on one level, that's kind of true in terms of the base level material ideas of what I'm talking about. But here's what Christians believe, that we actually are hopeless at becoming the people God's called us to be without the influence and power of the Holy Spirit. And two, we've actually got the most reason in following Jesus to become these kinds of people because Jesus modeled perfectly what it looks like to be connected with God and with others. And so maybe you're sitting here today and you're thinking, oh, maybe I want to implement some of this stuff. And I just want to say, and you're not a Christian, I want to say, awesome, but don't be fooled. This stuff would just prolong our earthly life rather than promise us heaven after it and heaven now in and through it, through the power and presence of God. So all I want to say is, man, let's get good at connecting with one another, but have you connected with God? Here's what we love to say as Christians, that Jesus lived the life we should have in loving God and loving others, and he died the death we deserved because we weren't that way. He made himself disconnected to God for a time so we could be connected to God for eternity. And here's the invitation of every single Sunday as we gather as God's people. Do you want to know Jesus? Do you want to follow God? Do you want to come back into a relationship with your heavenly Father who made you to connect with him? I just want to create a moment where you might be able to do that yourself right now. So can I invite everyone in the room just to close their eyes, to bow their heads, and to cultivate the moment in which, yeah, sure, we're side by side, but where our, our attention is on Jesus. And if you find your heart stirred right now and you're thinking, goodness me, I would, I'd love to meet God. I'd love to start a relationship with Jesus. Just as everyone's eyes closed and heads bowed, I'd love to invite you to raise your hand. There's something stirring in your heart, but the way to embody it for yourself is to raise your hand and say, yep, I want to follow Jesus. And so if that's you, can I invite you just now to raise your hand? That's you. I'm going to leave a space open. Please, just raise your hand nice and high. And in doing so, you're saying, I want to follow Jesus. And perhaps for the very first time. Wonderful. In a moment, we're going to pray. And it's a simple prayer. It's, God, sorry I've lived disconnected from you. Thank you for what you've done to connect me through Jesus to God. Please come into my life. And if that's you, I just invite you to pray this prayer in the quiet of your own heart. And see what God does after that as he connects you through Jesus back to himself. So let's pray. God, sorry. Sorry for the way I've lived my life disconnected from you. 
Sorry for insulating my life with distraction when perhaps you've been trying to speak to me. Thank you for what you've done in Jesus to make a relationship back with you possible. Would you please come into my life? Save me. Remake me. And out of this connection with you, God, would you help me live the life you're inviting me to live? For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Friends, we're going to jump into worship now. And I just want to say, worship is a whole human experience. Some people, they just use their minds in worship and they keep their body, their mouth shut, you know? It's just like, oh, I'm just thinking about the worship words. And other people, they sing so loud and you wish they'd reflect more on how they sing so loud. And... But there's this wonderful invitation just to become unselfconscious and unabandoned and unhindered where we bring our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength, raising up one voice, beautiful and broken, all together for the sake of giving glory to God and encouraging one another in the beautiful truths that make up the story of which we're all a part. So as we lean in now, as Eduardo and the team leads us, can I just encourage you, what would it look like for you to take the next step in boldness involving your whole self in worship? What would that look like for you? Perhaps take that step forward. There'll be a team down the front, I believe, ready to pray for people both now and after the service, and we'd just love to be part of that response alongside the Holy Spirit in your life. And so if that's you, come forward. But in the meantime, let's involve our whole selves in giving glory and praise.